0: So I remember meeting a guy named Mike at a halfway house called the Lighthouse in Camdenton, Missouri. Now he, was, he, he worked construction. He was a big dude. He had a goatee. He was kind of losing his hair off the top, but he was, he was pretty intimidating and, and was known for being a little bit fierce. So he was a big, he was a gruff guy. He had a lot of stories that involved him being reckless and impulsive. But he had been appointed as one of the house leaders there in the halfway house. He was known to be extremely direct when addressing behavior issues or relapses. But what I found amazing was that Mike's truth-telling, the way it was received, having been an addict himself and well acquainted with the struggles he was challenging others to overcome, seemed to give him a voice that surprisingly was comforting You know, when we think of people who are telling us the truth, that voice gets kind of grating, right? When it's mom, when it's dad, when it's brother, sister, when it's boss. It just gets kind of grating. It starts to irritate your ears. But Mike's voice was comforting. When he wasn't addressing problems, he mixed with the guys easily. They ate together, watched TV together, worked together, and prayed and studied together. But when it was time to talk, there was no hesitation for Mike. And it was received because this was not judgment. That's a key point. What he was doing, it wasn't judgment. Judgment is kind of, I'm looking down on you. I'm telling you who you are. And that I'm I'm not like you. But this was intervention. This was a fellow struggler extending both the truth needed to survive. Have you ever been in that kind of environment? This is life and death for those folks. If they don't come clean. If they don't recover, it could be a life or death issue. So, to the extent he gave the truth they needed to survive and the grace needed to sustain. You know, I've been volunteering at a recovery center outside of Monroe. And one of the techs there, you know, usually they have some experience with addiction. So, he said it took him 10 years to get his one-year pen. So what they do is when you make it a full amount of time, you get a pen that shows that you've been cleaned that entire time. But it took him ten years in and out of treatment to get his one-year pen. And so what that means is that for ten years, people had been willing to tell him the truth, but also extend grace. Otherwise, he would have never gone back. You know, that first time he went into that recovery center... And they just cast judgment on him and talked down to him. He would have never come back. But for ten years, they told him the truth, like Mike would have, and extended grace as well. But the truth is, many times the church we're guilty of telling the truth. We'll tell you the truth, right here, black and white. I'll tell you the truth, but I'm not willing to extend grace. I mean, we might give you till the end of the service. To straighten up, right? I'll give you to to the end of the morning to straighten up. When you're talking about 10 years, can you imagine that? 10 years of patiently sharing truth while continuing to extend grace. You've got to be kidding, right? You've got to be kidding. You know, I love being in a recovery center every week because denial has no place there. And the truth is, is that judgment you know, looking down on other folks, can't exist without denial. But in the church, many of us are in denial. And we're not in denial about our righteousness, you know. Nobody would say, would you say I'm righteous today, anybody? A little warm in here. Anybody say I'm righteous? You would? Okay. All right, well, you understand where I'm going. So I'll just discount it. But nobody would say I'm perfect, right? Would anybody say I'm perfect? I've got it all together in my life? No, absolutely not. But we're in denial about our goodness, So here's the kind of things that we say. You know, every now and then, this is how we always preface, right? Every now and then, I'm a little bit stingy. But I'm no thief, right? Every now and then, I'm not entirely truthful. But I'm no liar. You know, I don't always play by the rules, but I'm no cheater. Don't you call me one. (laughs) I do occasionally indulge myself, but I'm no addict. I don't really do much to make things better, but I'm not making them any worse. At least give me some credit. In other words, what we're saying is, I'm no saint, but I'm not a sinner. Right? You ever thought about that? You, talk, you go, to, go out and talk to people in culture. Are you perfect? No. Are you a sinner? Are you kidding me? You want to fight? <laughs> don't call me a sinner. Right? So when we see someone who's clearly off base... It's easy to secretly console ourselves that we're one of the good guys, right? We're one of the good guys. But the problem is how we define good. Paul says that you determine your goodness by comparing yourselves with yourselves. Isn't that how we do it? Comparing yourselves with yourselves, but he says this is not wise. The truth is there is a standard that we all fall short of. And the path to righteousness or being, that's simply what it means of being right with God, having a fixed relationship with God is not the path that we always expect. We think it has a lot to do with us, but it really doesn't. The prevailing view of righteousness, it's like a scale where your good deeds outweigh your bad. Right? So I know I do bad, but I do more good. I'm gooder. And so it outweighs the bad. Right? That's the way that we tend to view righteousness. So if you're feeling guilty, it's time to pile on some good deeds, right? You know, Saturday night didn't go so good for me. So I'm going to go to church twice on Sunday to make up. For it. I'm going to outweigh the bad. I'm going to try to tip the scales in my favor once again. But the reality is that getting right with God, you ever seen that church sign? Get right or get left? hmm Isn't that sad that that's the way some of us view the church? But the truth is is that getting right with God's a zero-sum game that we're not in a position to win. I mean, we're not going to win without help. Today we're going to look at a parable where Jesus gives a shocking picture of how one becomes righteous. It's one of my favorite parables in the New Testament. And I know you're going to enjoy it too. Because when the person who thinks they've got it all together, they've got all the answers, they're better than everybody else. They got a rude awakening when Jesus tells this parable. And the little guy, the one who feels forgotten, the one who doesn't feel good enough, Jesus proclaims him righteous. Turn with to Luke chapter 18. We're going to be reading verses 9 through 14 this morning. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It'll be up here on the screen, so don't worry. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. And this is sometimes the reputation that the church gets. And sadly, sometimes it's deserved. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a despised tax collector. I mean, this was the definition of good guy, bad guy in their culture. The Pharisee, their job, their full-time job was just being good. Tax collectors were traitors. The tax collectors were the bad guys. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. And it's going to make you mad. I'm going to warn you. It's going to make you mad. It makes me mad. I thank you, God, that I am not a sinner like everyone else. For I don't cheat, I don't sin, and I don't commit adultery. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. Can you see the gall? I mean, where, where is this man's heart? It didn't start that way. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector does totally different. He stood at a distance. He dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, not the goody-two-shoes, returned home justified." right with God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, before we're too harsh on the Pharisee, I mean, he probably didn't start out that way. He had a a pure heart. He wanted to serve God. But he fell into a trap that you and I can easily fall into. So the first point today is that there's a little self-righteousness in everybody, right? we're honest, there's a little bit of self-righteousness in everybody. Self-righteousness and judgment go hand in hand, and as we've already stated, judgment is rooted in what? Comparison. Comparison. I'm not perfect, but compared to you, I'm pretty close, right? Isn't that how we are sometimes? You know, I'm not perfect, but compared to you, I'm pretty close. And like many other sins, self-righteousness is something we can immediately detect in others, right? somebody's full of themselves and thinking they're better than you, you can pick up on it immediately. But it's hard to see in the mirror. It's hard to see in the mirror. So how can we go about detecting this unwelcome guest? Because self-righteousness can not only get in the way of you having a good relationship with God, it can impede others from being made right with God. So here's three signs of self-righteousness that we see clearly in this story. Number one is you boast about what you do not do. This is something that's easy for us to do. You you see what other folks do, and you've managed to avoid that, so you start to feel pretty good about yourself. I start to feel pretty good about myself. I'll never forget a sermon I heard in college. Still makes me uncomfortable to this day. The guy was up there, and he was just on tear. You ever heard a preacher get on a roll? I've never touched a drop of alcohol. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never used the Lord's name in vain. And I just want to say, good for you, man. But the truth is, I was really uncomfortable with his testimony. Because it made everybody else feel awful. I mean, the people who had not been perfect. So you boast about what you do not do. Ironically, this man has now been through divorce. And that's awful but we're, we set ourselves up for pain when we focus on what we don't do. We look down on others. Number two, we look down on others. That's another symptom. So the Pharisee said, here's what I don't do. I don't sin, I don't cheat, I don't commit adultery. And then secondly, he looks down on others He said, I'm not like this guy over here. I mean, this guy is the definition of messed up. So we tend to look down on people who struggle with what we don't, Right? When you see somebody and they've got a real problem, you've got a problem, right? You've got a problem. Not me. You've got a problem. But it's only because I don't understand it. I've never struggled with it. I've never been where you've been. I've never hurt like you have hurt. I've never tried to cope with what you've tried to cope with. And so I tend to want to look down on others. And you know this is happening when you get on your soapbox. Anybody like, who's got a soapbox? Keep it with you? Yeah. Carry travel it, travel around with it. And when you get around your people, get on that soapbox. Start talking about those people. Can you believe those people? Can you believe those Republicans? Can you believe those Democrats? Can you believe those alcoholics? Can you believe those drug addicts? Can you believe those people? But every now and then you get a glimpse of what you're becoming. Because you say it to the wrong person. You say, can you believe their behavior? Can you believe it? then that person responds, yeah, I believe it. I believe it because I did it. And then all of a sudden, it gets really uncomfortable. You start to see a a reflection of yourself, the self-righteousness that's in your heart. And then it goes underground for a while, but it eventually comes back. Nobody wants to be self-righteous. Maybe there's a few. But nobody wants to be that. But it comes from a, a fair misunderstanding. So it goes underground, but it comes back. And then number three is a symptom if you're struggling with self-righteousness. You boast about all that you do. It's because we view our good works as credits in some kind of spiritual bank account. Remember, we are talking about the scale. I want to outweigh the bad with the good. And we're sure that we're in the black, right? We're far from overdrawn. We're not perfect, but we've got more in than we've had more go out. But as we've already discussed, outweighing your sin, listen to this, outweighing your sin is a battle you can't win. If you're viewing it this way, outweighing your sin is a battle you can't win, not without help. So if these are hitting you anywhere that you struggle sometimes with boasting about what you don't do, you tend to look down on others, you boast about all that you do, I think there, there might be something deeper going on. Because self-righteousness, this is the next point, never justifies us before God. Self-righteousness never justifies us before God. Verse 14 again says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. So what does it mean to be righteous? Here's a simple definition for you. And now we're getting to the meat of the message today. This is what righteous means. It means I need forgiveness. Like I recognize it, I'm not perfect. I'm fallen. I fail, I fall short. I need forgiveness. I ask for forgiveness, and God forgives. So it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we don't do. It's about what God does. I need forgiveness. I ask for forgiveness in God. In other words, righteousness is not something we do. It is something that God does. It's something that God does. 2 Corinthians 5, 19-21 says, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. So it's not talking about God went out and found all these worthy people. God went out and found all these righteous people and he just welcomed them in. It's God went out and found people like us. People like me. And then he reconciled them to himself. No longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. Because what we try to do, if we see it like a scale, is I want to make an offering. I screwed up. We talked about this today in Micah. I screwed up. I want to fix it. I want to make it right. I want to give an offering to tip the scales in my favor. But that's not going to work. You know, we're not going to be able to do it. So God does it. It is Jesus who justifies us before God. It is Jesus who fixes the relationship that we can't fix. So, if Jesus makes me right with God and I am unable to tip the scales in my favor with my behavior, and that's what we want, I want to tip the scales in my favor through my behavior, then this brings us to an uncomfortable conclusion, which is where if if we can get to this point today, it will cure you. It will cure you of self-righteousness. And it will enable us to create an environment Where people can come in from anywhere. Struggling with anything. And we can tell them the truth. We can share the truth. But we can extend grace. And we can continue to extend grace. Because maybe they need ten years. Hopefully not. But maybe they need ten years to come out of the darkness. Because you don't know, Gracie has a sign in her office, you don't know what battle somebody's fighting. It might take them 10 years. And if we can provide the truth, but also the grace and the warmth and the welcome and the acceptance, giving them time. Because that's what it takes, right? Change. It takes two things. It takes truth and it takes time. Doesn't it? Doesn't it take that in your life? It takes truth and it takes time because sometimes we're not ready for the truth. You know, like Jack Nicholson said in that movie, you can't handle the truth. Give us some time. Give us some grace. Give us some space. And maybe we can. So the uncomfortable conclusion that we all need to come to. And that we resist. Because right, I'm no saint. But I'm not a sinner. Watch your mouth. Right? The uncomfortable conclusion is I don't deserve forgiveness. I don't deserve forgiveness any more than you do. And you don't deserve forgiveness any more than I do. The truth is. Because none of us deserve it. And so we're in the same place. I can't tip my scale to where I'm better than you. So I lose my soapbox. I lose lose my stool to stand on. And I lose my right to look down on you as you do me. And this brings us to the blessed place where God would have us land. This is the cornerstone for a church where people can encounter truth patiently. And consistently shared in a gracious environment it is humility. And humility is the key. Verse 13 and 14 But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. And I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified. Before God, so humility is the key. Firstly, with God, humility with God. James four six says, "God opposes the proud; he has no patience for the proud, but he gives grace to the humble." Jesus also said, "You have not because you ask not." So, if we're willing to acknowledge our need, God will meet our needs. So, we need to be humble enough to ask. God, I need forgiveness. Please forgive me, and God forgives. That's righteousness. But in modern times, there's a third character that needs to be added to this parable. So you've got the self-righteous Pharisee. You've got the humble, repentant sinner. But now we've got another character. This is the person who doesn't really appreciate God's grace. This is the entitled sinner. Right? I'm entitled To both sin and get grace. So this is the person who willfully does wrong, and then they casually remark to God. Hey God, you know, Saturday night was really not so great, but why don't you just put that on my tab? Isn't that the way some folks view it today? Just put it on my tab. This is because they're confident that Jesus is going to pick up the tab. And they plan to keep a running tab. Right? Just put that one on my tab, God. But the humble person is deeply impacted by the perfect Savior's sacrifice. And they're like the man who beat his chest and asked for mercy and received it. And I bet you, I bet you that when he left, he didn't go look down at anybody else. When he had received grace, when he had been marked by grace and forgiveness, I bet you he didn't go get on his soapbox like the Pharisee had. And I doubt that he just went right back into his life as it was. I think he wanted things to be different. But maybe he needed truth and he needed time. Like we all do. So be humble with God. And then humble with others. Ephesians 4.28 says, Instead we speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ who is the head of his body, the church. So rather than comparing ourselves with the symptoms of others... Because the truth is, we don't know, I don't know your heart. I don't know your background. You don't know my heart. You don't know my background. So our symptoms are different, and we don't really understand where it comes from. But we can speak truth from a heart filled with love and compassion. So here's another way to think about this. I don't know why, but I'm concerned that what will lead to where. Now let me back up just a minute. I don't know why you're doing what you're doing. I don't know what caused it. I don't know your backstory. I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know why. And I'm not presuming. I'm not assuming. But I'm concerned that what you're doing is going to lead to where. It's going to lead to somewhere where you don't want to go. And because I care about you, let's talk about this. I'm I'm not on my soapbox. I'm not better than you. Because I don't even understand why. But I can see that what's going to lead to where. And it's going to lead to a place where you don't want to go. In other words, this isn't about me. This isn't about a set of rules by which I'm judging you. Because it feels like that sometimes you come to church. It's impersonal. Here's the truth. Deal with it. But that's not what we're talking about here. Not somebody that's been marked by grace and that's humble before God and others. They're going to say, this isn't about me. This isn't about a set of rules by which I'm judging you. This is about what you yourself desire. So what if church was full of people who were humble? What if we understood that righteousness is not something we do, but something God does? What if we recognize that every story has a backstory? And you know what? Your story might be a little bit darker though so there's no need for me to try to figure out why and to start looking down on you. Or for you to start looking down on me. What if we refused to cast stones? Right? Just put a ban on it. huh? No stones. And instead pointed people to the rock of our salvation. He is the foundation on which we stand. We are made right with God only because he made this possible by his own blood. So the bottom line today is that his righteousness, his righteousness is my righteousness. It's not because I did right. It's not because I did good. It's him, Jesus. He was perfect. He was sinless. He did it all right. So his righteousness is my righteousness. And if we can understand this, we can avoid the self-righteousness trap. And this, I know I confused you. There's a line in the middle of your outline that I'm going to read now. The only one, the only one who was ever truly righteous. Because there was only one. You might be good, but he was better. He was perfect. He was sinless. The only one who was truly righteous was never, never, never self-righteous. And if Jesus, our Savior, was willing to sit with anybody... And share a meal with people that the religious leaders thought was scandalous. How dare you? You're embarrassing us. We're religious leaders. Jesus, you're embarrassing us. What's the matter with you? And Jesus said, there's nothing the matter with me. I'm the only one who's righteous. And I'm extending grace in a way that you're not willing. So this trap prevents us from experiencing or extending grace. God's grace if we fall into the self-righteousness trap. And we need grace. Do you need grace? Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. I need grace. We need grace. And you know there are plenty of other people who also need grace. And if we could be a church that we're going to tell the truth. I mean I don't think it's going to be a problem we're going to have. We're going to to teach the Bible. But if we could be an environment where people can come and they can say, you know what, I'm not sure I'm ready for that, but I like these people. I mean, they're a little bit quirky. huh? <laughs> they're a little bit quirky, but I like those people, and I think I might come back again. Because even though we're different, even though even what they taught, I don't know that I'm there yet. I don't know that my life is fixed and in an order yet, but I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel like anybody was looking down on me. Even when they found out where I'm coming from. Nobody tried to judge why I was doing what I was doing. They just cared about what lead to where. So let's acknowledge our need for righteousness. His righteousness. Let's receive it humbly. And my brothers and sisters, let's extend it in the same way that it was extended to us. For me, it was years and years growing up in church. I wasn't till 17 years old that I accepted Christ. And there's no excuse for that. I don't have anything to offer you, But it took truth, and it took time. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for today and for this opportunity. And I just pray, Lord, that there's somebody here today that uh, maybe that this is a new thing for them, that they had not understood that righteousness, being right with you, having a fixed relationship with you, God, isn't about them. It's not about them fixing things. It's not about them cleaning up and then coming to you. It's just about them coming to you, coming to your feet as they are and, and saying, God, I need forgiveness. God. Would you please forgive me? And then God, you say in your word that if we confess our sins to you and we seek forgiveness from you, that you will forgive and that they can come to you, God, and they can trust Christ as their personal Lord and Savior and begin their walk with him. It's going to be a better walk. It's going to be a better path, but it's going to be paved with more than just truth. It's going to be paved with grace that continues to cover their faults, and their flaws. Because you've covered it yourself, Jesus. We love you. It's in Jesus' name I pray.